Welcome to the Dolores Project, the only podcast endorsed by Sophia the Robot. I'm your host, Joshua Smith, and my goal with this project is to bring together some of the brightest minds on a controversial subject that will help everyone, yes, even grandma, understand what's at stake when it comes to our future with AI and robots. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have another special guest, um, really special guest today, uh, John Danaher, not the UFC fighter but the senior lecturer for the National University of Ireland in uh, Galway's School of Law. And he is the author of numerous books, collections surrounding lots of different topics, AI, robotics, robot ethics, um, many of which I have and have benefited from. And most recently, Automation in Utopia by Harvard. Um, and it's also a fascinating study as well. So John, welcome to the show. All right, thanks for inviting me, Josh, and thanks for um, the opportunity to participate in this conversation. You have a lot of great guests so far, so I hope I can um, live up to your billing as being a very special guest. So we'll see. Yes, <laughs> very special guest. Um, but yeah, John, tell us a little bit about who you are um, outside of pedigree and all those things. Um, what are some hobbies that you have? What makes you you as a person? Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer. I suppose I'm not prone to biographying my own life or trying to think about it as a neat little soundbite that I can share with people. Um, mm-hmm. I'm Irish. I, I kind of live in, in Ireland. I live in a, a rural part of Ireland. I, um, a, a, you mentioned, and this is not pedigree, but this is maybe kind of interesting, is that you mentioned I teach in a school of law and my background is in law and legal studies. Uh, you know, I still teach things like like contract law and banking law, but I suppose most of my kind of professional interests mm-hmm. are in philosophy and ethics of technology. But I would also consider myself to have a much broader range of philosophical interests. So, you know, philosophical reasoning and writing and inquiry is a major part of my life, and I would consider it to be kind of a hobby of sorts. Uh, so, I write a blog called Philosophical Disquisitions which I've written for well over a decade now and where I explore things that I'm interested in that aren't necessarily linked to my research. So you know, I, I write a lot, I have written in the past couple of years a lot about my you know personal life, things that I go through and the way in which I kind of reason through them philosophically. So the death of my sister a few years ago, I wrote a lot about mm-hmm. that, but uh, grief, different philosophical perspectives on grief. Um, I've written about, you know, regret in life, the sense of failure in life. These are all negative things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also more recently then written about, you know, becoming a parent and mm-hmm. philosophical perspectives on parent-child relationships and how valuable they are. So, you know, I, I think I think of myself as somebody who pursues a kind of philosophical mindset on the world in general. And I've always had that kind of instinct and I've just been fortunate enough to somehow connect that with my career in academia. Um, in terms of hobbies, like, you know, nothing too exciting there. Music, um, do some sports running and cycling and things like that. I'm kind of into yeah. astronomy and chess and things like that. So you're fairly you're typical, um, interests, I suppose. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, you've written a little bit too on um, religious perspectives recently in your uh, blog. That was pretty interesting about um, like demystifying different uh, aspects of um, religious reasoning. If, if I believe, like I, I had a chance to glance through it, but I didn't really get to go in depth. It was really interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, the, this is probably a point of considerable dis- difference between the two of us. Uh, my a lot of my initial writing in philosophy and things I wrote on my blog were based on philosophy of religion. And I've written a few kind of professional papers on this, mainly on moral philosophy and and religion, kind of meta-ethics and and religious views. Um, But yeah, I I have written a lot or thought a lot about philosophy of religion. I suppose that was my entry point into a lot of philosophical debates as well as thinking about general worldview issues, like what was the most kind of rational or yeah. philosophically defensible worldview that one could have. I have migrated quite a long way away from that now. I'm, I'm not sure mm. it's actually possible to have a, a fully worked out worldview that you know is completely defensible. I think it's... Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to view myself now as a not somebody who tries to develop a theory or understanding of everything and slot everything into it and make it all coherent and rational and consistent. A much more kind of piecemeal thinker now, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. And uh, for me, it was kind of the opposite route to uh, this discussion. Is you know, I also study worldview and philosophy of science, and um, but we come at it from a different perspective, um, from the religious side of it. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely interesting and. Um, I don't think you'll ever find like a grand unifying theory of worldview that's just going to explain everything. Although a lot of people try, um, and that's fine. But John, um, tell us what brought you into all the fascinating things that you've written about with robots. What kind of brought you into that particular um, subset of of ethics, and um, you know what kind of drove you into that study? Was there a particular moment, or just kind of nudging, or whatever? Yeah, again, I don't think there's. I don't. I couldn't pinpoint a single moment where I said, "Oh, I, you know, this is something that I definitely want to pursue or that I'm interested in." You know, I I have always been interested in um, science fiction and get read a lot and watched a lot of that as a child. So that was probably my first encounter with some philosophical questions was through different forms of, of science fiction. You had recently a guest on Sven Neum, is you know, recently mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, we're professional colleagues anyway, and I think he mentioned in his interview that he, how he wasn't a big science fiction <laughs> fan, whereas I guess I, I'm the opposite in that I, I was a big science fiction fan. Perhaps I've become slightly less of a science fiction fan over the years, but you know, when yeah. I was a child, I would have watched something like Star Trek The Next Generation repeatedly um it used to be on tv every day when i would come home from school and it was the kind of thing i, I would watch before i had kind of evening meal and went off and did mm. homework and things like that and there was an episode of star trek the next generation second season measure of man is the name of the episode in which the android second officer commander data um, undergoes a trial to so a scientist comes to the ship wants to take him to study him because he's the only creature of his kind that they know of 
And the question then is like, can he just be taken away from the ship or does he have autonomy? Does he have a, a say in his own destiny? And they have a trial in the middle of it as to whether he is a person mm. or a machine. And I've actually written a little bit about this as well in kind of papers uh, and some a lecture that I gave a few years ago. I, I found that question fascinating. And ultimately, I guess mm. in that episode, they conclude that he is um, a, a person or has equivalent rights to an ordinary human being. Um, and I think the attitude or perspective that they had in the show was basically correct, which is that you know, Data looks and acts like a human or a person or with moral standing in most respects, not every respect. There's a whole plot sure. point about the fact that he doesn't have emotions, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I mean, he pretty clearly mm -hmm. does based on the actor, but it's hard to act as though you don't have any emotions. Um, and I kind of have always sort of continued with that view that anything that looks and acts like it has moral standing, as long as it does so in a you know, pretty consistent and reliable way, should have moral standing. And I've, I guess, recently defended that view in a slightly more philosophical mm -hmm. depth. Um, so that was, I guess, one kind of entry point into this. But, you know, I, I have a lot of interest in technology and, and ethics and the kind of robot aspect of this kind of relationships with robots, the moral standing of robots. It's just something that I accumulated over the years as opposed to something that I really directed myself towards. Again, I guess this ties back a little bit to the point I was making earlier on about being a somewhat piecemeal thinker now as opposed to somebody who has a particular mm -hmm. ideological agenda. I just come across questions that I find interesting and I try and pursue some of them as far as I can go. Yeah. I think that complexity really frustrates people sometimes because it's, it's harder to pin people kind of into a quadrant or, you know, if you if you want to find a label or category, sometimes it's really hard um, for thinkers like you and and others, and I, I guess even just in general, people who are interdisciplinary. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, baggage that kind of goes along with some of these ideas, and um, you kind of have to take the good with the bad. But um, I, I think it's fascinating, and I really enjoy it um, because from my field of, as a theologian. I like to think of it as like inbreeding, like everything is kind of, you, you don't go outside of uh, the family tree, so to speak. And um, so when I started studying philosophy of science, it was very strange to me that, you know, well, we didn't talk about this source, so we didn't talk about this. And, you know, there are all of these thinkers on the periphery of what we believe, and there's points of contact there, but we're not kind of, you know, putting our feelers out, so to speak, and, and extending hands to them to say, you know, what do you think about these ethical issues or what do you think about this? And, um, and I, I just find that strange. I still find it strange. I don't really understand it um, as far as like, it's like you're in a lot of ways afraid of uh, infection or something if you come into contact with this person that you don't really understand why they believe that and they're going to infect you with their, their ideas and their piecemeal thinking and so let's just avoid it. Um, I know it's more complex than that, but <clears throat> well, in I, a lot I, of ways, that's, that's what it's been. 
It is sort of a natural instinct that most people have, and this is kind of well documented amongst psychologists that we have a tendency towards, you know, motivated reasoning and that we seek out things that confirm beliefs that we already mm -hmm. hold and we tend to discount or ignore things that are inconsistent with our, our present um, kind of views or beliefs. And, you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of that as many as many other people are guilty of that. And I'm sure somebody looking in on the outside could look at, you know, the total body of things that I've written and probably identify some pretty, pretty clear ideological biases or um, consistencies, but I just don't think of my it myself. From the inside of my life, it doesn't seem that way, I guess. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> it would be strange if you if you didn't feel that way. Um, so, so, John, let's talk about friendships. Um, I know you've written on this and uh, currently using your paper on this in a book that I'm writing or a chapter and, um, you know, I find it quite brave, uh, your perspective, and I follow a similar line of thought um, as far as wanting to say that they can be true friends um, to us or virtue friends when a lot of people are skeptical about that. And so when so you say they, you bit. mean robots, right? Just to be. I guess that's yes, obvious yes. from the theme of the podcast, but just be clear. Yeah. <laughs> and when I say they, uh, you could also say it. Um, but I, I tend to say they um, when I write about them. And so maybe there is my you know, underlying assumption is that I believe that there's a possibility for that. And, um, and not just like you say, even from like a behaviorist perspective, if they act a certain way and it's pretty consistent, um, then moral standing seems to be okay. So your thoughts on, um, robotic friendship and we'll just kind of drive the conversation from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a number of different ways in which you could approach this, but maybe I'll just take the last point that you made because you, you linked it up with the discussion about whether they, whether robots would say have moral standing and you can link it that way, right? And that's um, maybe a natural starting point. And I've thought about this recently that you can probably think about the way in which we relate to other beings of all kinds along a spectrum of sorts. So there's different uh, degrees of relatedness or connectedness or intimacy that we have with others, right? So a, a kind of basic moral stance towards another is that whether they belong within your moral community or not whether they are both mm -hmm. owed some sort of like basic duty of moral respect or not. Um, and, you know, I guess most of us would say all human beings sort of belong within the moral community. Some of us might say that certain kinds of animals would belong within the moral community too. I guess that's a slightly more controversial view, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, some people feel very strongly about that. Others don't. Uh, but then as you sort of get closer to your own life, you find people who are within the moral community, but they have a kind of special status within your life. So, you, mm -hmm. you know, children, spouse, uh, fr family, friends, right? So fr friendship is like a kind of, it would say almost a more intimate or closer degree of, rela of moral relatedness than just recognizing somebody as having a basic moral standing. Whereas mm -hmm. recognizing someone as a friend seems, at least on the face of it, like it's a step up from just basic moral standing. Mm 
And, and so th- this is, I guess, the interesting point when it comes to robots or contested beings. We can recognize them as having a basic moral standing, and there's lots of controversy over whether a robot or an artificial entity could ever have that property or quality. But it seems like even more of a stretch to say that they could have this closer degree of related to a, relatedness to us, which is friendship. But yeah. that might actually always be the correct way to think about it, because maybe the properties that we require of a friend might be somehow distinct or orthogonal to at least some de- degree from the properties that we associate with somebody having basic moral standing. So I guess the classic framework for thinking about friendship is the Aristotelian framework, which, you know, for better or worse, tends to be the starting point in most philosophical discussions of friendship. And maybe we might come back later on as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because Mm -hmm. there might be a problem with it and that it might bias the entire conversation or put it down a certain road that maybe it shouldn't go down. But, you know, the classic Aristotelian framework is that there are three kinds of friendship. There are so-called utility friends that, you know, just friends that you get something out of, or uh, I get contacts, I get um, a tennis partner or something, you know, something I can do something with, I can get something out of that connection, but there's nothing more to it. It's it's sort of a, a temporary or superficial bond. And, and to an extent, it's also a fungible. The friend, the friend is fungible because, um, you know, one tennis partner is as good as any other tennis partner. As long as you have somebody to play the game with who has a certain skill level, it doesn't really matter who that person is. You don't care about them in their totality. Sorry. Mm-hmm after hitting the computer in front of me. Um, And then the other type of friendship for the second type of friendship for Aristotle is a pleasure friend. It's not entirely clear that there's a huge distinction between the utility friend and a pleasure friend within the Aristotelian framework. But I guess, you know, a pleasure friend is somebody you you derive pleasure from the interactions that you have Mm -hmm. with them. And then the third category of friendship is the virtue friend which I, you know, Aristotle mm-hmm. singles out as being the highest ideal of friendship and the thing that maybe we should aspire to. And you know, the exact characteristics or attributes of a virtue friend are debatable as well, somewhat contested within the literature. But Aristotle has this idea of it's like somebody that you share a life with and that mm-hmm. you care about them as another entity or human being, and they care about you as another entity and human being in their to- in your totality. It's not just a superficial, temporary, fungible relationship. It's something much deeper and more intimate than that. It's not it's not a, a loving relationship. It's not a sexual relationship, but it is a kind of very kind of close interpersonal bond. And so, to have that kind of close interpersonal bond, again, the question then arises: you know, what kind of attributes does somebody need to qualify as a virtue friend and then we get into the debate i guess about whether robots could ever attain that ideal of virtue friendship yeah yeah and i um i I don't bring aristotle into this conversation because of what you said it um it tends to i think tend to taint the conversation one way you know it's um and uh, aristotle for, for for a lot of reasons is incorporated into a lot of um, Protestant thinking. Uh, mostly, I think, because of his relationship, later uh, appropriation in Aquinas. But uh, 
anyway, tried to think differently outside of him and, um, and, and really tried to look at some of the ancient Near Eastern ideas about friendship. And uh, there's a lot more to that before Aristotle gets on the scene and, and starts making up categories for us. But um, yeah, I, I think, especially in light of COVID, John, um, I, I think as far as like companionship, um, as I would think about with a, with a dog or, um, you know, I've, when I was in the military, there were people who had, um, canines and they were handlers, but they, they had friendships, you know, they had a bond between them and that was an important part of how they were used. And, uh, you've had bonds with actual bomb disposal robots and, um, you know, I've had a robot. It wasn't my friend, but it did save my life. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I didn't take it that far as like, this is my friend, but um, just experimenting with my own children, which we tend to do, um, I, I watch them interact with different robots in our own household. Um, and there seems to be some type of psychological need almost to, to bond with an object or a person. And, and I think that you find that in psychology too. It's, um, since the 1950s that they've understood that you don't just need shelter, food, um, clothing, but you also need love and companionship. That's an important part of human flourishing. Um, and whether that's hardwired in for survival or whatever, I, I think robots can be a part of that. Um, so I'm interested to get your perspective on that. Do you, do you think that, um, robots, I mean, it doesn't have to be like sentient, uh, advanced humanoid robotics, but just basic, um, even robots that we have today. I mean, even non-embodied ones like Siri and, and other things like, uh, Amazon Echo. Do you, do you think those can serve as friends? Yeah, again, this was this is where this is where you kind of get into the annoying philosophical debate about categories that you want to avoid, which is like some people will say that the term friend should be reserved for a certain ideal, but you know, if if you want to go into if you want to ignore that or not worry about that too much and say, well, there's different kind of degrees of companionship or relatedness that we can have mm -hmm. with other things, then I think absolutely, you know, uh, you can have companionship with with pets you can have companionship i think with with robots too i suppose it it's interesting to ask like is there any property or requirement that is essential to a companionship so you know there are people who have very close bonds of attachment to inanimate things and physical things you know um there, there are famously the kind of people who have claim to have you know, fallen in love with cars or walls and mm -hmm. things like this, right? So we tend to view that as some. There's something odd about that. There's there's some kind of misalignment or distortion in their sort of psychological capacities or understanding. Maybe that's mm -hmm. not fair, but that's the kind of perception that that we tend to have of that. And the, that must be because we think there's something missing there, right? So even if it's it's not that like a a companion has to be fully sentient or care about us in the same way that a mature 
adult human being would care about us. There has to be something there. So what is that something that, that might be missing? I tend to think that it's probably some kind of like dynamic, um, adaptive interrelation that, you know, it's not just that, you know, my, my kettle or my toaster is very reliable and I, I, mm-hmm. I'm attached to it in a way I couldn't get through the day without interacting with it, but I don't think of it as a, a companion mm-hmm. because there's nothing coming back really. It's all kind of just a, an asymmetrical one-way relation. Whereas, you know, with a, a pet dog or a, a robot, there's something coming back. There, there has to be some kind yeah. of interconnection and interrelatedness. So I, I would say some, some degree of kind of mutuality or symmetry in the relationship is important. It's not that the two partners have to be perfectly equal in all respects, but there has to be some give and take on both sides of the interaction for there to be companionship. And then there's all these other things that you would get from that, uh, that interaction, like, you know, some, some sense of security, emotional well-being, uh, some sense of being cared for, looked after. So you mentioned the example of, you know, soldiers with bomb disposal robots, they get very attached to them and famously, had held funerals for them in some instances. So that, that suggests that you know, there's a degree of interaction between them and the machine. And they, they feel like they're getting something back from it, like this sense of security or that this thing mm-hmm. is doing something on their behalf or helping them out in a way. And so I think you have to have that as sort of a minimum core requirement for any degree of companionship or friendship. And then you can build upon that to have maybe higher degrees of, of friendship or interrelatedness. Like there, there's a perspective that yeah. I quite like on this, by the way, just um, to mention mm-hmm. from a philosopher called Helen Ryland, who I recently interviewed myself because I do a podcast of my own. And you know she has developed this framework on um, degrees of friendship, uh, kind of going beyond the Aristotelian paradigm and looking at kind of many different properties or requirements or things that we associate with friendship. Um, and I think that's kind of a more useful way of thinking about it than maybe this kind of strict Aristotelian set of categories uh, that we could think about these different degrees with kind of a minimum core and then you build on all these extra attributes. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question in a shorter way, I think we can get some of those things from present day robots, some that kind of interaction and companionship that we're looking for that is a psychological need. Uh, and there are, of course, you know, some interesting documented cases, one of which I, I write about in one of my papers of people who purport to have these kinds of bonds with something like Siri or Alexa. Yeah, and I think it, it's something we have to be very careful of in in the design phase, of, especially with robotics. Um, and I think about the Spike Jones film, Her, and others, um, that I think it really could be a beneficial relationship if um, the design is not to manipulate and extort and all those other things that uh, seem to be where it's headed for financial reasons and and other things. But, um, you know, you, you talk about the mutual- mutuality of the, the relationship, but... Uh, you take like Hello Barbie or something like that, which is um, made by Mattel. 
it's really does it's really in control of that relationship right it can't go beyond what it's programmed to do you know it, it can't everything's going to be driven by the robot and the entity itself um and, and i would personally like it to, to see it shift away from that where the human and the robot equally have a chance to kind of shape the narrative of the friendship and um and i think that's when you really get to that stage of what you're talking about of you know there's there's a mutual benefit from this friendship and i know that sounds strange to a lot of people because why would we care about the other entity well uh, i think about you know even in children you know you you, you can in phases kind of help shadow for them or foreshadow what it means to to be in a relationship what it means like if you want to cultivate a heart for let's say cooking you know we don't just give our kids a real frying pan we give them first a a playset um, and so what if what if robots in this category of friendship could be a precursor to um, deeper and more enriched human friendships and um, we're I think we're missing a lot of that uh, in the design phase uh, and especially with the limitedness of of what's available and what's marketable yeah I mean there's there's a number of things there I mean just to maybe pick up on this first point that we could see robots maybe kind of as like a stepping stone or a gateway to other kinds of more meaningful uh, uh, relationships or friendships. I think that's probably true. And it's, it's an idea that I think is useful. I mean, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about this. You can think about it in a kind of linear developmental phase that, okay, some people struggle to find or to build relationships with humans, either because they're too mm -hmm. immature or for some other reason. And so a robotic companion can be a good gateway to that. Or some people are in a kind of state of cognitive decline. And this is kind of a controversial example of kind of elderly people with degrees mm -hmm. of dementia being uh, given a robotic companions like peril, the peril, the seal to, you know, soothe them. Um, they already do this with companion animals, but they're kind of starting to do it with um, companion robots too. Um, so, and autistic children, of course, there's lots of mm -hmm. experiments done on this uh, with them using or being exposed to robotic companions as a way of kind of learning a, a style of human friendship or relatedness. And part of the rationale for that is that um, they find humans almost kind of too chaotic and too unpredictable. They struggle mm -hmm. to understand what their intentions and motivations are. So actually having a slightly simpler a companion that is more predictable and reliable is a good sort of stepping stone for them because mm -hmm. you know famously what the, the the issue with autism and i appreciate it's a spectrum disorder but it's that they lack a kind of mind reading capacity they, they can't understand mm -hmm. what others are thinking or what the, they can't really empathize with others in the the ordinary way like this cognitive and empathy with others um and so uh, robots can be, as you say, a kind of good stepping stone for them. But I think you can think about it in a broader sense as well. It's not just that it's a, a stepping stone towards something else. There could be kind of normal, mature adults for whom mm -hmm. they just require different kinds of relationship in their life. I mean, in one sense, like it would be exhausting 
if I had, if everybody I encountered in my life was my kind of Aristotelian virtue friend, you know, it, like you, you have a limited amount of time and attention to spend on things and you can't, you can't have that kind of degree of intimacy with everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the Robin Dunbar, famous um, evolutionary anthropologist has this idea of there being a certain limited budget, friendship budget, you know, we, it's about mm-hmm. 150 people that we can know, in our lives that know well, but then there's a much smaller group of people like under 10 that we have you know, very close friendships or bonds with, but we do need other kinds of companionship and relatedness too. And this is something I, the point I make in this paper I wrote on um, kind of the, the philosophical case for robot friendship. Part of it is dealing with this notion of Aristotelian virtue friendship, but the other part of it is dealing with other kinds of friendship and how they can be complementary to one another. And so, having a robot who's like a, a golfing partner or like a tennis partner mm-hmm. or something like that. That's just an example. It could be other things that they do, you do as well. Um, that can complement another kind of human relationship that, well, none of my friends are interested in playing chess with me, yeah. but I have this robot who's doing it. So that, that could be a useful um yeah, I mean, I do. I, I, I want to pick up on the kind of deception point that you made as well. But I mean, I you kind of have to stop me because I could talk for hours. So <laughs> if you want me to talk about that, I can I can talk about it. But yeah, sure, we get time. Yeah, I mean, so there, the the point that you made, I think, which is a very good one, and very, it's a critical one when it comes, I think, to the ethics of human robot relationships is. Are the robots on our side? So actually, this is something to go back to the example I gave earlier of, of Helen Ryland with her framework of the degrees of friendship. One thing she mentioned in conversation with me, and it comes out in her paper too, is that she thinks that mutual goodwill of some kind is important for any kind of friendship. And she views that as sort of like a, a minimum necessary requirement is that the other entity with whom you're interacting has to have some kind of goodwill towards you. Now you don't have to think about that in a highly like cognitive sense. At least I don't think you do. I, I can't speak for her perception of it. Um, so it's not necessarily that they intend good things for you, but they, they mm-hmm. act in a way that's kind of on your side and this yeah. not against your interests or wishes. Now, obviously the, the problem I think with a lot of robots Nowadays, in the way in which they're designed, is that they aren't don't always have that kind of goodwill, that kind of basic quality towards them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wrote another paper about this and um, the idea of robot betrayal. So, where I said, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about deceptive design of robots that were deceived into thinking that they're humans. Okay, that they are, they are thinking and acting in a way that is human-like. So, people refer to this as deceptive anthropomorphism in the design. Of robots, uh, you know, a classic illustration might be something like a a robot that has a pair of eyes on it, but it doesn't really use those eyes to see. It, it uses those mm-hmm. eyes just purely for the kind of social interaction. It has like hidden video cameras or something elsewhere that that are actually do- recording and seeing the interactions that it has with you, and so that's a kind of deceptive anthropomorphism that it it, it appears as if it has eyes that are looking at you, but they don't really look at you. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I think there's a subtle kind of conceptual confusion between anthropomorphic design and betrayal. And so I think that something can be designed anthropomorphically and to elicit the responses that we typically have towards human-like entities, 
that is perfectly fine and perfectly ethically allowable and normal. And in, in some sense, it is the central goal of the whole research paradigm of social robotics to play upon those anthropomorphic cues. But what I do think is ethically troublesome is betrayal, which is where a robot appears to be on your side or be, to have good intentions towards you, but actually is doing something that is contrary to your interests, such as like recording the interactions with you in order to develop a more sophisticated like advertising mm-hmm. um, algorithm that can manipulate you or control your intentions in some ways. Uh, so th- yeah. that that seems to be to be the more important thing, but the only thing I would say about that is that you've got to bear in mind that in all human relationships, there's always a risk of betrayal. <laughs> yep. Right. And you know, I, I'm sure all of us have encountered times when our friends haven't always acted, the people that we call our friends haven't always acted with our best, uh, or with the best intentions towards us, or with our best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or we have suspected them of not doing so. And so it's yeah. kind of like a an almost ineliminable feature of relationships or intimate relationships with people is that there's always this risk of betrayal that we have to factor into them. Yeah, and, and I think too, you could also say like, I don't agree with, I think some of that is intentionally designed, just going back to the Hello Barbie thing, um, which, you know, if my child has to, or has has to have parent consent for privacy issues. I think that in itself um, is not a good sign because they they store the the conversations on their uh, website and then um, it actually sends an email to the parent saying that um, you know hey we noticed that your kid is interested in in these things and you might want to buy them. That's literally what the service does, and so. Um, I would be more interested in a closed system as where, you know, maybe just the parent um, and one other person or whatever is, is allowed into that circle. Now, the, the parents do have access to the conversations with Hello Barbie, but um, I don't have one. I've just been researching it. That's why I know so much about it. Um, but I think it's interesting. And but like you're saying, you know, betrayal is a part of human relationships. And so if they're going to mirror a human like interaction, then betrayal, just, you know, harmful, malicious deception is also a possibility. Um, you know, and, and so for me, I'm like, why would we put expectations upon this completely different entity that we wouldn't put on a human? Um, we know we're not going to say, you know, I'm not going to be your friend, your true friend, unless you promise sign this, consent, you know, whatever, uh, that you're not going to betray me. We don't do that in our human friendship. So why would we do that with a robotic friend, um, our, our artificial friend? And, and I think you will see in the future, deep emotional attachments to, uh, these artifacts. Um, but they could be some of the best friends that we've ever had. I mean, if you think about it, if the entity is solely interested in your hobbies and your well-being, um, that will be the best friend you've ever had. And it can do the dishes and it can, you know, do all these other things. Um, that will be a deep psychological impact upon somebody to lose that entity. Um, and I have, I'm a pastor, you know, I have people 
say, Hey, can you pray for my dog? You know, can you pray for these things? And I used to think that was really silly. Like, am I going to pray for your dog? Uh, But I see the deep psychological impact that it has upon them. And, you know, and and so, yeah, I I do it now. Um, And I think robots will get there eventually. Um, As soon as the market finds a way to not have um, things like Cosmo and by Anki and others that they're just too expensive and they don't have enough utility um, to justify spending a hundred to three hundred dollars for this toy that really doesn't it's not as human like as I said it would be but I think once we cross that threshold um, artificial friends will be a reality and I think especially in light of COVID it might be a necessity yeah I mean I think uh, like you know, what you pointed out is that you know, part of the problem with robots nowadays is maybe like the kind of economics of them or even the political economy behind them right so are they being created by commercial enterprises whether they want to find some sort of like commercial angle on that how are they going to make money and you know there are issues with the business model that we find in many domains of life nowadays and the kind of centrality of advertising and the blurry line between advertising and manipulation that there is. So like anything that's somehow reliant on constantly getting you to purchase something um, or to purchase related goods and services, like whoever it is with Barbie, like Mattel, is it who own Mm -hmm. Barbie that, you know, they don't just want you to buy the doll once they want you to buy a range of, kind of um, accessories or other products mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. And th- so they want to maintain that relationship. So they always have that other kind of agenda there. And so they're like the, the shadow partner to that friendship that your yeah. child has with the doll. And that's the issue there. So that's, that's the kind of thing that you want to somehow cut out or remove from the, the equation or, or alter in some way. And so that might mean that we just have to have a different way of conceiving the development and design of these things. So, you know, again, th- things that are designed for like elder care, let's say you might think there's maybe a different kind of economics behind that. It's not so much about, you know, constantly selling accessories or other services to people. It's about mm-hmm. having something that's actually useful in a healthcare setting. And it's likely that the main purchasers of those things aren't going to be private individuals, but rather kind of large healthcare consortiums in most countries the government in other some countries i guess private healthcare uh, corporations and you know again the, in the military context so this, this is slightly different has different concerns you know, there's a very different rationale behind the creation of something like a bomb disposal robot as, mm-hmm. and the you know utility of that as opposed to the creation of something like uh, barbie um uh, kind of a robotic version of barbie which i'm not familiar with so that's why i can't remember the the name of the uh, toy that you just mentioned. Um, so I think those are those are issues that need to be kind of cleared up. Yeah, regulation might have some role to play in this as well, around kind of designing the settings for these devices or what's acceptable or, or permissible for them. The, the thing I will say, though, and I do believe this reasonably strongly, is that the desire to create more and more human-like artificial entities isn't something that's going to go away. And I think we're going to kind of keep doing it. No, like no matter what people like me say or 
people who have a very different view to me within the kind of robot ethics literature who are very critical of the idea. I think that's just going to happen. Um, and once we do create something that is you know, very close to or almost indistinguishable from a human, then we kind of enter a whole new ball game when it comes to understanding our relationships with them. Yeah. So, John, um, what are you working on now? Any books coming out, papers that we should know about? Um, no. <laughs> sorry, the simple answer to that. I, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm always sorry. I'm always working on something, and to some extent, I, I, you know, again, I, I mentioned earlier on, I write the blog on a fairly regular mm-hmm. basis. But uh, I guess you mentioned COVID at the start of this. I think you know my degree of academic productivity has declined substantially since COVID hit. And since mm-hmm. I had, you know, I had a daughter two years ago and another one on the way in um, less than a month's time. So as we're recording this, mm-hmm. I don't know when this will be released. So those are the things that are taking up most of my time and attention at the moment. Um, yeah. And I guess I've, I've less, less time and interest in scholarly things right now. Yeah, I hear you. We um, we're expecting, and um, hopefully the next couple of weeks. So, and this will be our third. So, I'm I'm with you. It's uh, COVID yeah, so has you... definitely changed a lot. <laughs> for yeah, us. some of it. Like, sorry. I mean, obviously, COVID has been very bad. I think for humanity in general. But you know, parts of the experience have been, I think, positive for me. And when it comes to the kind of companionship and relationship that managed to have with my my daughter that i probably just wouldn't have been able to have if i was at work mm. normally right yeah. and I, i'm very lucky in the sense of my, my job as an academic is one that doesn't require my presence in a certain place all the time i probably would have spent half my time working from home anyway mm. um but i think it would have been a very different experience um or my, my first two years of fatherhood let's say would have been very different if i had been regularly traveling to a workplace so i am grateful Hmm. for that opportunity for sure yeah that's um important times and it um it flies by so quick you know we we have a six-year-old um it's just like you're too tall you know it's like it's strange can't pick Um, you up anymore no it's like um you know you have these deep complicated thoughts and um you know little boy is just He's, he kind of understands numbers a lot better than language. My, my daughter, my wife is a speech therapist, so we, we talk a lot about language um, and processing and stuff like that. And she's, uh, she's very in tune to like, our kids should be here by this point and, you know, they should have these many words. And um, there's just such a big difference in their personalities and cognitive abilities. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating and um, to see them interact and, um, yeah, it's, there's there's nothing better than that to me. Yeah, I mean, like, just I don't know if this will be included in the recorded version or not. But like, if you want to kind of tie that in with the conversation that we're having, I suppose like that's that's the kind of thing that is missing, obviously, from the technology that we have nowadays, mm-hmm. and it does sort of link into this Aristotelian ideal. And I, I know that people don't say that you should think of your children as friends per se. Some people think it's a a distortion or misunderstanding of, of the relationship. Uh, but 
at the heart of the Aristotelian virtue, friendship is this notion that each individual is a distinctive entity, is you know has its own kind of unique mix of qualities and attributes, and you see yeah. that obviously very clearly when you have children yourself, and I expect to see this now once I have a second child that they will be very different people and different um, characteristics and different personality traits. Uh, and there's a sort of like homogeneity, I think, to a lot of the technology that we create that you don't have that sort of distinctive particularity is to put a more kind of philosophical phrase on it. Um, and maybe that's an impediment to this type of virtue friendship. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, you, I would say for me, my perspective is friendship, like with, you know, raising children, it, hopefully that's the end. Definitely like that's, that's where you want it to end. And there, there are times when you have to, you know, you're, you're shaping a, a moral compass and you're shaping a person's worldview up to a certain point. Um, and that can go one or two ways. Um, and, you know, certainly environment is really important, but hopefully like my little boy and I, we have a very different relationship than my, my little girl as where I understand my little boy in a much deeper way because I see myself in him in a lot of different ways um, in his different uh, emotions and uh, responses to things it's like that's that's a little me and um yeah i think you're right when we we cross that threshold with robotics and we kind of see into that mirror and we see ourselves in it it's it's a whole different relationship um and i don't i don't know if that would be a good thing or a bad thing um hopefully good that we can use it to foster virtue in society but uh well, there's well, there's money to be made, so to speak. You know, my my anthropology tends to be pretty negative uh, of people. Uh, so, yeah, and I guess that's that's the thing I suppose to maybe be interested in or look at for the long run. You know, I'm thinking about somebody like is it Hiroshi Ishiguro who kind of makes the robot version of himself, right? Mm -hmm. What does he see in that? I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or is, is that is that is there a kind of narcissism at the heart of that project, or is it or is it this kind of fundamental desire to relate to something mm. that's like us? I don't know. Yeah. No, I think it's even in the creation of humanoid robotics, right? We want to, and this is a very deeply theological thing: is we want to to make something in our own image. Yeah. Um, you, you think about the whole branch uh, development of AI is we want to create a machine that thinks like a human but um it just seems to be fundamentally flawed because they are two completely different entities um and will always be i think distinct um as far as metaphysics metaphysics goes but um i don't think that has to be a bad thing or a detrimental thing to the relationship just like with with animals and uh kate darling's book is that there's there's always been a distinct relationship between animals and humans and i think likewise with with robots they they can be a distinct friend and i think will bring great value if we give it time and attention and, and care um as some of your work has done and um put it before people who are not going to 
really think philosophically about these issues. So I'm grateful for that, John. I really, really am. And uh, a lot of your work, um, I don't always agree. Um, it, it's it's not that I think you're wrong. It's it's more so like I I, I don't know if I I want this conclusion, so to speak. If that makes sense. Um, especially with the, the automation stuff. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good end for us. Yeah, sure. I don't like, I mean, I, I certainly would hope that nobody would agree with everything that I write. And <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. that I agree with myself and that, you know, I, you can, you can read some of the papers that I've written where I directly criticize a previous version of myself. Um, sure. But I do like to kind of bring it full circle, like part of what I think of myself in doing in my kind of academic writing work is that I, I do try to push ideas as far as I can take them. I, I try to follow down a particular logical path as far as I can go and see if it makes sense. And sometimes I might retreat back that path myself. I might say, well, I yeah. think I used to have that idea. I think it's actually wrong to some extent now. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes that means you kind of go into uncomfortable territory and part, I guess part of that is the economics of, of being an academic as well, which is that you can, there's kind of a pressure on you to do something original and distinctive. And I'm, so I am probably attracted by that. And I, I, maybe I sell the more extreme conclusion of what I'm writing. So there's, there are reasonable ideas and maybe then ideas that are slightly more at the fringe and they they come as part of this package of things that I end up writing. And hopefully people find some, value in seeing the way in which I try to reason things out or think things out, even if they don't agree with the ultimate destination that I arrive at. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I meant, John. Like I greatly value your work and appreciate everything that you've, you've done, at least what I've read um, in your major publications and collections. Um, and it's not that I think that you're wrong. It's that I think you're right and that I'm you're afraid you know, that I might be right. Yes, yes. I'm <laughs> okay. afraid that you might be right. And uh, you know, and so I yeah, I, I interact with your work a lot and I encourage everyone to to pick up some of his books and uh, I think especially the most recent um, Automation and Utopia um, from Harvard Press. Um, you know, a lot a lot of good stuff. Um, and obviously the collection you wrote on um are were the editor for uh, Robot Sex. I think that was a very important work as well. So, so John, tell us uh, where we can find you um, if we have any questions or more interest in your work. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the main hub for anything that I do is my blog, which has a long title. It's Philosophical Disquisitions. Type it into Google and it'll be the first thing that comes up. There's no point in searching for my name because as you mentioned... There's a, a far more famous John Danaher, who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor and has been profiled in the New Yorker and everything. But I guess if, if you search for like John Danaher, National University of Ireland, or NUI Galway, you'll find me. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. and thanks, then, yeah, John. Appreciate sure. you. All right, thanks, Josh. Thanks. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter and on my website uh, for all the projects that are going on, joshuakasmith.org. Uh, really appreciated this project and the time that each scholar gave. So I'll see you soon, and we'll be back with more scholars and more jokes and thoughts about robots. Take care. <laughs>